This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Every single day, 1% of the entire world population eats McDonald's. That's 68 million people eating at just one fast food chain in one day. In Australia, more than 5% of the population have worked at McDonald's at some point in their lives. Maybe you have. So fast food is a huge global industry. Whether it's the Golden Arches or the Smiling Face of Colonel Sanders or the many competing chains that want to deliver pizzas to your door, it is hard to find anywhere in Australia where fast food is not just a phone call away. But how much do you know about its origins? Well, apparently it all goes back to Wichita, Kansas in 1921 at White Castle, which has never really been brought out to Australia. I don't think we've ever had White Castle in Australia. But that had a particularly speedy method of cooking burgers. But it wasn't until after World War II that the idea really took off. So with more money in people's pockets, dining out became an enjoyable pastime. Drive-in fast food restaurants, you might remember the sorts of ones you would have seen on Happy Days, they became particularly popular with the rise of car culture in America. Not only that, the number of young people who had jobs and who had money and were spending it on burgers and fries... In 1948, McDonald's was born, selling burgers at just 15 cents, and there were other fast food restaurants soon popping up around the country. Kentucky Fried Chicken opened in 1952 in Salt Lake City in Utah after being started, sort of, earlier by Colonel Sanders in Kentucky. Uh, Burger King was launched in 1954 in Florida. Their trademark Whopper arrived three years later. In Australia, we call them Hungry Jacks. But it wasn't for another decade after Burger King opened. It was in 1968 that Australia's fast food industry really began with the opening of several McDonald's and uh, three years after that, the first KFC restaurant. As fast food chains continued to expand, it became clear that what was the attraction was the consistency between restaurants. You knew when you walked in what you'd be getting. And that was a feature, not a problem. Many of these companies, like McDonald's, fueled massive demand for local produce as they tried to shorten their supply chains. Of course, we all know fast food is extremely unhealthy, and it's faced a lot of backlash because of this, most notably after the release of the movie Super Size Me in 2004. But this morning we're going to talk about the history of fast food and find out more about how it came to be. Our guest is Adam Chandler. He's a journalist and author of the book Drive Through Dreams, a journey through the heart of America's fast food kingdom. Adam, good morning. Good morning. Look, in your book, you write, on a descending spectrum of American certainty, it goes something like this. Premarital, sorry, death, premarital sex, fast food and income taxes. The US is and remains a fast food nation. How often does the American, the average American eat fast food? Well, depending on which stats you're following, uh, over a third of Americans will eat fast food on a given day. Um, if you zoom out a little bit, it's about 80% of Americans total every month. And then 96% of Americans eat fast food every year. So almost everybody. 
So when I was a kid growing up, and even today, sort of, it was something that was kind of special. You didn't do it every day. You didn't do it every week. It might be, you know, a few times a year. For some people, though, it's an everyday thing. How many people would eat it every day, do you think? Everyday diners uh, run up about 15 to 20%, I'd say. Uh, it's not it's not so much something that everyone necessarily does every day, but for a lot of people, it's a ritual. Uh, grabbing a coffee and an egg McMuffin on your way to work or going somewhere after school, uh, depending on who you are and where you are, it's sometimes the only option for uh, something quick and easy to grab on your way somewhere else. So it's a complicated picture. What about people who eat it for dinner, though? I mean, how regular is that, do you think? The regular, uh, for, for dinner, you'll see uh, a mix of just kind of people running, you know, from place to place and grabbing it quickly. And then the more traditional kind of family meals where you just want something to eat quickly or bring home. And uh, it's hard to pin down stats for that. But um, it, it's pretty common. It's more common than you would think. I know we're sort of going to go back to where it all sort of began at White Castle in Kansas, but it goes back beyond that, doesn't it? It goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. Did he bring the French fries from France, and I think they originally came from Belgium anyway, to the US? Yes, that's a that's a piece of uh, culinary history that people like to to bring up and also dispute because all of culinary history is a little muddled, especially in the States where um, you know the history is a little younger, but famously he had a dinner in 1802 at the White House and he instructed the White House chef to cook uh, potatoes in the French manner, which meant cutting them and frying them. And that was something he picked up when he was secretary of state in France. So he's credited with bringing French fries to America, even if they aren't exactly French. So in Australia, we've had this long history of uh, of what we call milk bars. In the US, it was sort of like diners. When did they start being almost um, standardised? Uh, when, you know, one that was in one area suddenly started popping up in other areas? The 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 growth of what we would call diners or soda fountains kind of came about after World War One. It was uh, a popular place to hang out as people moved into cities and you saw more urbanization and electricity becoming mainstream. And so you would see a place like Walgreens, which in its, in its heyday was a soda fountain and now is more considered a, a pharmacy. And they would replicate the look of these places wherever they opened. So you kind of walked in and you'd see something familiar. You kind of knew from looking at the menu what you could get and what it would cost. And so that was in a lot, a lot of ways part of the appeal of places that were chains that looked the same wherever you went. So what happened at White Castle in Wichita in Kansas? The story of White Castle is one of those great entrepreneurial invention stories where there's a, a chef who's cooking meatballs at a stand and he's frustrated with how slow they're cooking. And so one day he smashes the meatball flat with a, the back of a spatula and he realizes he can cook these what ultimately are called sliders really quickly. And all of a sudden he's selling these very fast to a clientele outside of a factory. And he decides to open a few more because they're so popular. And 
what this sort of sets off in a lot of ways is the rise of this sandwich as a culinary icon. There have been burgers before, but he had a specialty bun that he put the meat inside of. And he started basically replicating this formula over and over again. And people came to know what a slider was. And he opened a store and ultimately everyone came to eat there and people started copying it. And it kind of snowballed into this national phenomenon that started improbably in a small town at the time in Kansas. So why hasn't White Castle taken over the world the way that McDonald's did? It's a, it's an interesting question. One, one aspect of fast food that really is fascinating is how these, how these companies grow and what their ambitions are. White Castle is still privately owned by a family called the Ingrams, and they didn't want the company to get too big. So they opened for a lot, they opened to 500, 600 chains and slowly kind of pared back as, as competition came into the fray, as, as things changed. And so they didn't go public or they weren't bought out by a major corporation the way that you would see a McDonald's sort of expand and grow. Um, they had smaller ambitions. And so they're kind of happy with where they are. Because I've been to the U.S., you know, quite a few times and I've never been to a White Castle in my life. And I don't even know that I've ever seen a White Castle. Where do you find them? Are they mostly in the Midwest? Are they all over the U.S.? Well, it's funny because the original one was in uh, was in Wichita, and there is no longer one there. Um, but there, there are some in the Northeast, and there are some in the Midwest, and there are a lot of knockoff chains, a lot of replicas that came about in the years following White Castle that you can find. One is called Crystal Burger, and that's all around the Southeast. There's a famous one called White Mana, um, but there were so many imitators that they actually had to the company actually had to pursue lawsuits against companies that were basically ripping off their style there was a white a white tower a white clock a red castle a red uh tower a blue blue tower and a blue castle and these were all chains that came up probably five or ten years following white castle's initial uh, emergence on the scene so uh it really speaks to the popularity of it and eventually a lot of these chains kind of died out and went away um but white castle still remains and there are a few of its imitators too was there anything unusual about their burger? I mean, I could easily tell the difference between a McDonald's burger and, say, a Hungry Jack's or a, a Burger King. Is there anything different about White Castle? White Castle's burgers are smaller. They're these little sliders. So it's it, it's less than, um, you know, it's just a few ounces of meat. And you sell them by the bag. That was their slogan initially, was sell them by the sack. You'd buy them for a nickel each and you'd fill up a big bag of them and you'd go on your way. And eventually burgers became bigger. And that's sort of one of the aspects of fast food that is controversial is how big the portion sizes have gotten over the years. But when it started out, White Castle sliders are these tiny burgers and they still are. And ultimately uh, the food moved in a different direction and White Castle kind of stayed the same. Are they any healthier than the others? They try to claim that they're healthier, uh, but ultimately they're not. It's, it's, it's the same basic ingredients. Um, eventually they, they started with fresh beef, um, because there was a, a bit of a, I'd say a local hysteria around meat at the time. A lot of people had read the book, the jungle by Upton Sinclair and were nervous about ground beef. And so in the early days of white castle, 
they would roll in barrels of meat and grind them fresh in the kitchen in front of everyone. So everyone could see what, where the meat had come from and, and that it was something that was fresh. And eventually, like a lot of bigger chains, they would move to frozen beef. And so a lot of that naturally um, fresh ethos was kind of taken out of the equation. That's interesting you mentioned that because that is the way that it's come back to these days, that there was a time when you would walk into a McDonald's, you'd order your burger, you would get it immediately because they had them stacked up there behind the counter and you just took, or they gave you the one that you ordered or two or however many you ordered. And now you go and order. You don't even speak to someone. You've got to tap a screen and then hope that they get the order right. And then they call out your number. And that could be, you know, 10 minutes later sometimes. So why have they sacrificed fast food, speedy food, for this pretense of healthy ingredients or at least um, freshly made? It's interesting to see the way these chains have diverged over the last couple of years. Uh, There are places where you go where you'll still get very fast speed of service. And there's not really a sense that you're getting the freshest burger around, but Consumers have asked for food that is prepared freshly. Um, the way that new chains have, have emerged and, and have emphasized that burgers are cooked to order there or whatever it is that they're serving is fresher has really resonated with um, consumer demand. And so people would actually, in some instances, prefer burgers that are made right then and there as opposed to ones that may be a couple minutes old. And um, it's it's changed the whole nature of the fast food experience. Rod in Fairfield is with us. Good morning, Rod. Yeah, good morning, uh, Rod. Uh, Adam, uh, what are the chemical preservatives in, uh, in uh, McDonald's hamburgers? Not just McDonald's, but uh, Adam, you might want to mention some of the other ones. But yeah, what do they put in them? Well, there is a filler in most of the, the fast food uh, burgers that that ultimately keep the composition together. So if they're frozen, they bind, or if um, they're fresh, they stay fresher a little longer. Um, I couldn't tell you the specific chemicals because they're probably too many to list. But um, if you look at if you look at the ingredient list for a lot of these places, and they, they make the information available online, you'll see in a lot of cases, it's not just 100% fresh ground beef. In some instances, it is, but largely you'll see a lot of um, starches and other kinds of uh, ingredients that may be hard to pronounce and may make you scratch your head a little bit. When are they made? If they are frozen, and yes, they make this pretense of, well, we're making it fresh in front of you, we're making the burger fresh in front of you, but the actual meat patty might have been made how long ago, do you think? Well, it's, it's a good question. It's different for each chain and it's different in each country. But I, I do know that, that um, they aspire to ship them out quickly. Some in, in the United States, for example, you can get a quarter pounder, which is our, you know, one of our signature sandwiches, and they're cooked with fresh beef. So it's different. It takes a little bit longer than if you order a Big Mac, which comes with the standard burger that's frozen. So they've tried to accommodate both the people who want food quickly versus the ones who want it a little bit more fresh and you pay a little bit more for it. And that's kind of how the breakdown goes. Um, it, it's hard to pin down exactly how the operations function because it's, it, it's different from region to region. Right. What I'm more concerned about rather than the patties, and I don't want to single out McDonald's, but they are the best known, is how much sugar is in the buns. 
Right, right. That's a big push lately. Um, what, what's really interesting about this divide, and this is across fast food and across borders, is when you offer a new item and you say that it's healthier, you've taken out preservatives or you've made substantial changes to the to the formula, you have people who applaud it. And then you have people who say, I like my burger the way that I, I like it. You know, I don't eat it every day or I just kind of want what I'm used to. And so there's often a backlash that follows the announcement of fresher ingredients or new formulas that really cause um, headaches for these companies. So in a lot of instances, even people who say they want change tend not to ultimately be happy when uh, a new version of their favorite burger comes along. And a lot of the people who say they want fast food to change aren't really eating fast food that often anyway. So it, it almost doesn't behoove these companies to make changes on their behalf. Okay. Let's talk to Daniel. Daniel, good morning. Good morning. How are you? All right. You're driving a truck at the moment. We should point that out. Um, you want to talk about what's in uh, hamburger patties? Yeah, I work for... Um... Well, let's not say who you work for, Daniel, if that's all right. I work for Tyson. Okay, we don't say what you're working for, if that's okay, Daniel, please. Pardon. Okay, you want to talk about what's inside burger patties? Yeah, um, we don't put anything into the burger patties in the actual factory that I work for. Um, I don't know whether anything comes through from the meatworks or the suppliers or McDonald's puts anything into them, but when we actually make the patties, we don't put anything into them. What, just meat? Yeah. All righty, Daniel, thank you very much. So Adam Chandler is our guest as we talk about fast food, the history of fast food. So that's what uh, Daniel is saying is about what's made in uh, Australia's burgers. And, and some of these uh, companies do proudly present, uh, you know, boast that they're 100% pure beef, or the beef we use is 100% pure. They don't guarantee that it's only 100% beef in the patties. Isn't that the case? Yeah, it's, it's a complicated thing where they break down the formulas. Uh, you can say that it's 100% beef in the patty, as in um, every every bit of beef in there is is actual beef. beef, but there may be additional components to the burger itself uh, versus uh, something that is actually just only beef. Uh, it, it, it's sort of a lot of linguistic uh, kind of jigsaw and fun games that happen when you when you really break break into the the ingredient lists of some places, uh, but it's not it's not standardized across the industry, which is part okay. of what makes it so interesting and so hard to track. Okay, so Reese uh, in Narara says In and Out burgers are very good. I mean, they have occasionally dipped their toe in the water in Australia, but not very often. And Lou says um, the best burger I had in Texas in 1991 was at Dairy Queen. So why can't we get better burgers at these fast food places? Well, it, it's interesting to see. Uh, everyone has their favorites. Dairy Queen is is one of those chains that's a little bit smaller, kind of like White Castle. And people swear that because it's smaller and, and they have more control over the operations, that the food itself tastes better because the employees are better trained. Maybe they're better um, compensated. and the system itself works better. But one big aspect of fast food is, is the fact that when you have a supply chain that is as big as it tends to be when you talk about these enormous chains, the consistency is, is more important than the actual taste in a lot of instances. You'd rather know going in that you're going to get something that tastes exactly the same wherever you go than something that is you know, mm. excellent in one place and then maybe a little less good in another. 
So that's kind of a, a gamble that a lot of these chains have made. Some of them that are smaller and have a little bit better control over their systems have uh, managed to do both, but it, it's a really tricky divide. So burgers are one thing. Then we've got pizzas and chicken. And the other one, the other major outlet around the world, I suppose, is KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And in a way, I mean, they had their own origin story. They tell the, the, the myth of Colonel Sanders, I suppose. But it was somebody else that really made KFC uh, known around the world, or at least across the United States, beginning with uh, Pete Harmon in Utah. How important is he to the KFC story? He's a big feature in the story. Essentially, uh, Colonel Sanders had had opened up all of these, um, had opened a gas station and served fried chicken that became very popular in, in his part of Kentucky. And what he ultimately did was go out to small mom and pop kitchens and, and shops and diners and sell his method of making fried chicken. And it was extremely popular, but it it limited it the reach of, 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 of fried chicken in, in the way that people really knew what to, what to call it, what to ask for. And what Pete Harmon did was, was basically he met Colonel Sanders and he tried his chicken and loved it. And he opened a store called Kentucky Fried Chicken. He coined the name and made it sound a little more exotic. There is not really a culinary tradition of Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's, there's Kentucky, there's, there's fried chicken all across, you know, the Southeastern United States. And, there's nothing particularly special to Kentucky Fried Chicken, but at the time he made it sound exotic. And that was one thing about it that kind of gave it this edge. And so a lot of people tried it for the first time and naturally made this association with it. So his first franchise in um, Salt Lake City, Utah, became kind of the standard bearer for the rest of the franchising model in that the stores were called Kentucky Fried Chicken and that changed the entire franchising industry. So he also, this is uh, Pete Harmon, came up with the phrase, I think, finger licking good. And that's something that has stayed with Kentucky Fried Chicken or KFC throughout its entire life. Whereas McDonald's changes their slogan from time to time. And McDonald's has Ronald McDonald as their face. Whereas Colonel Sanders is the face of KFC. And I'm talking about those two because they are the two biggest ones. Why does KFC do that kind of unchanging look, whereas McDonald's changes? A lot of it just has to do with what what customers want over time. Kentucky Fried Chicken has really been the same thing over the years. Um, McDonald's has tried to branch out from burgers into all of these new sort of um, markets and and all of these different kinds of foods, even healthier foods, um, that KFC hasn't really tried to embrace. So they're constantly trying to reach new markets. They're trying to, to, to find new demographics to, to be interested in the food. So their, their menu has grown into huge sort of numbers of items over the years. And more recently, they've been paring back. But what's interesting about Kentucky Fried Chicken is they've also changed a little bit over the years. Uh, in 1991, they shortened their name from yes. Kentucky Fried Chicken to KFC, at least in the United States because the word fried had such a negative connotation to it. In terms Same thing of happened in Australia, yeah. Exactly, that they they decided they wanted to change, change their, their association with fried food. So everyone kind of has to make these calculations. An interesting little note about KFC is that 
they actually ditched for a little while their their slogan finger looking good because of covid and the associations with eating with your hands oh, no. um in european markets and in the us so it it really is something that comes up against the the context in which people eat fast food and and what they think about brands uh, dunkin donuts is another example of a a popular chain in the us that now just calls itself dunkin because they don't want to just be known for donuts they have breakfast sandwiches and coffee and and all kinds of other things that they want associated with their brand so it's it's an interesting business model it's an interesting um yeah. way that these insights have played out so speaking of business models one of the things you do hear about mcdonald's is they're not into hamburgers they're into real estate and if you've seen that movie the founder about ray crock the man who basically took mcdonald's from the mcdonald brothers and rip them off, I think it's fair to say, if that movie is correct. And it's a fascinating movie about uh, small business becoming a big business. Was that Ray Kroc's mantra? Let's let's get into real estate. And, you know, the food's just a secondary part of it. Ray Kroc had a lot of help along the way. And that's one of the, one of the aspects of the McDonald's story that, that really uh, doesn't get told a lot. Um, one of his financial wizards was a guy named Fred Turner who came up, he's played by BJ Novak in the movie. He came up with the reality of having control over your franchisees by owning the real estate, which meant if one day they were serving Coca-Cola and they decided to serve Pepsi, which is one thing that happened in the history of McDonald's, one franchisee said, I want to strike a deal with Pepsi. And McDonald's couldn't really do anything about it. Um, by switching over into owning the actual land that the McDonald's uh, stores were on, they could control the franchisees to make sure that there weren't different menu items that came up and there weren't uh, sort of deviations from the script. And in doing so, it also turned McDonald's into this great landholder land that, that really... Um, changed how quickly they were able to grow. That's right. sort of what boosted that. Okay, Bill is next. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. What would you like to know, Bill? Rod, I'm just thinking that, that, that um, you know, in most, most instances, when, when someone advertises a product with a photograph or whatever it is, yeah. um, you can reasonably expect that product to, to be representative of the, in the photograph. But fast food's not. The... Um, when you, you buy a burger and you see the photograph yeah. of the burger, it looks sensational. And once you get wrapped up in that bit of paper, it looks nothing like mm. what's there. Why aren't they held accountable? All right, Bill, interesting question. But Adam Chandler is our guest. Why is that? Uh, it never looks like it. it. It always looks so much better in the ads, doesn't it? Yeah, it's 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 one of those one of those hilarious aspects of it is that you, you really, um, the expectations versus the reality don't match up. And, uh, in a lot of instances, they don't, they don't even really seem to try that hard to make it, to make it match. It's just uh, making something look appealing in a 30-second ad or in a photograph. I also hate the way they eat them in ads. They never hold them the way that normal people hold them in the <laughs> restaurant, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, while, while driving a car and steering through traffic, which is a lot, of, a lot of ways that I think people eat fast food. Well, they reckon, what is it, a quarter of meals are eaten with one hand, and that's why... They introduce popcorn chicken at KFC is because people want to eat it while they're driving. Right. In the, in the 1980s, the, people started using the drive-through more than they did dining in or taking out. And that it, they've never turned back from this. So they actually started designing food. And this is a cross-fast food. Taco Bell is an example of a, of, a, of a company that 
started producing handheld food that was easier to eat while you were driving or while you were in your car because they wanted people to be able to grab and go. And that, that, that's sort of the mantra that that's led fast food since then is having food that you can kind of just eat, eat on your way somewhere else. Lois has texted in and she says, my favorite fast food chain in America is Taco Bell. Why don't we have something in this country? So I'm not sure that, well, you know, there is one or two. There's not that many Taco Bells in Australia. But why didn't Taco Bell go as big here as it certainly is in the U.S.? It's interesting because Taco Bell is very popular in the United States, but uh, it hasn't tested well in a lot of places outside the U.S. It's very big in Japan. Um, and the menu there is very different. You can go in there and, and get a beer and get nacho fries, which are things that are, are now just entering the U.S. market, but weren't are, are staples of Japanese Taco Bells. Part of it, I think, is that it's not really authentic Mexican food in, in that way. It's Americanized Mexican food. So um, there isn't a huge market for it in, in, in the way that there are for, for things that actually have a, a culinary origin that, that, that goes very deep. So um, I love Taco Bell. It's actually one of my favorite, one of my favorite chains. And I, I'm, I'm always surprised to hear that there's not a familiarity with it around the world, yeah. given how, how good I actually think it is. All right. John is next. Good morning, John. Good morning, gentlemen. How are we? Not too bad. Do you want to make a comment about, I think uh, this happens with a lot of uh, food products, not just this one, but what would you like to say? Uh, profit before profit before consumption, I think. Um, I've got fond memories of being a kid and having birthday parties at a certain restaurant and going down into the freezer vault and all sorts of things. But uh, the common denominator you used to say is two wolf beef patties, special sauce, cheese, Lettuce. onions, pickles on a sesame seed bun. Yeah. And if you could say that within, I think yeah. it was 15 or 20 seconds, you get a free burger. And I'm kicking myself that I didn't put it in the deep freeze, the burger, in its styrofoam container and pull it out now and compare. I recently had a big Mac and you could actually see through the meat patty. It was about three mil. I should have got the verniers out. Um, not what it used to be. Okay. Should have kept the receipt and compared. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I just call it a Mac now. All righty. Kudos to... Kudos to McDonald's. We run a McDonald house and everything yes. else like that for what they do with the community and thing. It's, it's a right, great John. effect. Thank you very much. We'll get to that in a second as well. So are they getting smaller? Are they the same size as when the Big Mac was first introduced in the late 60s, I think? The portions have gotten bigger. The The actual beef and, and has gotten um, smaller if you, ask, uh, if you ask industry insiders. They'll say that the quality has reduced depending on where you're eating it. So it isn't, it isn't a surprise, and it's very funny. There was a famous commercial uh, in, in the 1980s uh, by the chain Wendy's where an, old, an older woman is, is looking at these burgers, and they're pulling back the buns and seeing the meat, and she says, where's the beef? Where's the and beef? It's, it's one of the most famous classic. ads in TV. Exactly, exactly. Um, it, it actually became a, a big part of a presidential debate um, when one, one of the uh, Walter Mondale, who was running for president, uh, said that Gary Hart's policies mm. were were lacking, and asked, "Where's the beef?" And it really sunk Gary Hart's campaign. It was an interesting uh, moment mm. there. But one of the things the that sunk his campaign, I think, he had some other problems as well, didn't he, Gary uh, Hart? That, that was a few. That was a few years later, but mm. it absolutely did did affect him. Um, but it's an interesting it's an interesting moment where you see um, this this history come through of 
people asking what what is this actually supposed to be in terms of the expectations and in terms of the reality. Yeah. Tim, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Rod and uh, Adam. Um, my brother-in-law's got a uh, McDonald's franchise in a growth uh, area of Melbourne, Victoria, and um, Adam touched on this, but uh, we're in lockdown, so many hospitality businesses during COVID are not operating, yeah. just the ones that can do um, takeout. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's just recorded um, record sales on a Friday, uh, the preliminary football finals weekend. So with the store shut, yeah. just the drive-through, no playground and record sales. So I found that amazing. Okay. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm not surprised, and I'll tell you why, Tim, and thanks very much for your call. The thing is, Adam, so many restaurants had to scramble and pivot, they said, uh, during COVID. But fast food restaurants, they were ready for drive-through. They were, you know, they were set up for that already, and that's why they've done so well, isn't it? Absolutely. They, they had a system built, and it's a system that people are, in some, some communities, very opposed to. And the city of Minneapolis in Minnesota uh, passed a ban on the building of new drive-throughs because they think they're uh, a safety hazard, an environmental hazard, and they just they just don't look good. Um, in part, this is something that over the years has changed because people have negative associations with drive-throughs. But in the last year and a half, we've seen a whole new approach to it because it is a, it is an effective way to get food quickly. And if you're open 24 hours, that's that's a necessity for people who are uh, driving trucks across the country or working late hours at hospitals. It, it really is an interesting part of the story that that really doesn't get told that often. Uh, trucker number one tells us that he was reading that Taco Bell is going to be opening a lot of stores in Australia over the next year. John has uh, texted in to say that uh, there is one at Blacktown in uh, Sydney, and I'm sure there are a few others, but it's just nowhere near as as uh, many as McDonald's or KFC, for example. Tell us about KFC in Japan, because that's what everyone eats on Christmas Day in Japan, isn't it? Right. It's a great story of uh, essentially KFC opening in 1970 in Japan and looking for a way to establish themselves in the market. And so what they do is they set up Christmas as an official Kentucky Fried Chicken holiday. There, for um, the story goes that a few homesick Americans were looking for turkey uh, for their holidays and couldn't find it in Japan, and so they decided to eat KFC. And KFC turned it into a whole marketing campaign, and it was so successful there that every year their store sales go twenty percent or twenty times higher during the month of December because of the association of the holidays. And Christmas with fried chicken. And so I I went to go report this and experience it myself. And it it was a lot of fun. There were people uh, basically wrapped around the lot, wrapped around the block in lines waiting for for takeout chicken that they ordered ahead of time. And every year they have these special Christmas buckets that are designed anew for each year and they become collector's items. And it's just a really unique way that that fast food interacts with the local culture, kind of in the way that you know, you can get um, the Hungry Jacks versus Burger King uh, is studied in law schools because of copyright yeah. um, and intellectual property, or you can get Vegemite at a McDonald's in, in, in Australia, but you can't get it nearly anywhere else. So it's a fun interaction between uh, an international chain and a local community. 
Uh, now, Caveman tells us the quarter pounder patty is now the size of the old Big Mac patties. I wouldn't know. I've never eaten a Big Mac in my life. But uh, would that be, does that sound about right to you, Adam? In the United States, they st- as I mentioned earlier, they started cooking them with fresh beef. And so one one little hack that people have been doing is starting to order Big Macs and asking for quarter pounder patties inside of them because you get a, a fresher burger with your Big Mac. Um, they are different patties now, in, in at least in the United States market. But I know in other places where they don't use frozen beef, you get the exact same thing. So it really breaks down uh, along regional lines than it uh, more so than it does across the entire uh, system. So in Australia, I think McDonald's were advertising that they were using, you know, 100% Angus beef. But Angus is like 90% of the beef sold in Australia anyway. That was no big deal. But is it just about how you sell it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of those associations that people have. I mean, there's so many words that actually don't have meaning when you look at the marketing. Fresh is something that or natural. Those are those are words that you know sound nice, but there's no way to quantify what what, what something natural is because there's no organization. E- organic itself is one of those terms that yeah. means something in in certain contexts, but in other contexts don't actually have a way to 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 standardize what what the meaning of that word is. So it's a lot of advertising. Ted has a question. Good morning, Ted in Perth. Oh well, um, I was just going to say a couple of things. Um, it's 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 reasonably well known that if you leave a Macca's down the back of the cupboard, uh, mm-hmm. it'll be there a few years later without any mould. Mm-hmm. Don't know what that says about the food, but um, <laughs> it's a lot of preservatives, uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but um, if they're designing the food so that you can use it with one hand while you're driving, what happens with when it comes to the idea about? using your mobile phone while you're driving and, you know... It's a different story, I'm afraid, Ted. Yeah, there's a lot of things that people do, like they smoke as well, but I suppose it's the distraction. But thanks very much for that, Ted. What about what Ted is talking about, Adam, and how long you can leave, you know, any of these burgers or whatever from fast food outlets uh, before they go off? Right. There have been a lot of uh, <laughs> there have been a lot of fun experiments. If you if you spend too much time on YouTube, you can you can see people who have uh, kept a, a burger from a fast food chain and and tried to keep it um, you know visible and, yes. and showed the changes that happen over the courses uh, of the course of weeks and months. And a lot of times you you'll see things that don't change. And they've actually been using that as as a way to to, to advertise better food. Burger King in the U.S. Um, had a campaign here called the moldy whopper where they they showed the food actually aging and, and decomposing because they were trying to show that their their food is better than other chains that have bad reputations so it it is a funny thing joseph in the great state of virginia is with us good morning joseph yes hello rod and hello is it adam adam chandler is our guest yep what would you like to say adam, joseph? adam. well Ad- <laughs> well i was going to bring up um the fact that Colonel Sanders was advertising in person in his at his dotage in his white crisp suit, and he used to come on advertising. Then it was Kentucky Fried. Everyone calls it KFC. Now we have fourteen secret herbs and spices. Eleven. It was very enticing because eleven is it eleven? Oh, okay, 11. I just exaggerated it. But um, anyway, he really pushed that. Secret herbs and spices, and everyone wanted to know what it was. 
That's a good point, Joseph. Thanks, mate. We're running out of time, but thank you very much. I wanted Adam to comment on that. But the the secret part of it, I think secret sauce for um, McDonald's as well. But as we heard with the others, you know, two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, because onions and sesame seed bun, you knew what was in it. But with KFC or Kentucky Fried, which they've gone back to now, the 11 different herbs and spices, most of it was chicken salt, I think. Uh, How effective was that? The marketing of uh, the 11 herbs and spices is is one of those marketing lessons that that you really have to tip your hat to because it, it's such a calling card for KFC. I went to the headquarters in, in, in Kentucky and they have the original recipe inside of a locked file cabinet, inside of a vault, inside of a safe. And there's a security team that escorts you there to let you see the place where the where the recipe lives. You can't you can't see it, but um, you can see the the file cabinet where it's held. And that's one of the things about it that makes it so fun is, is this idea that this chicken can't be replicated by anyone, that it was designed and and, and created by this one person who had an obsessive, obsessive passion for chicken. And that KFC story is, is something that really resonates throughout the generations and people have tried to decode and break down. And if you look online, there are a lot of stories about people who think that they've come up with the actual recipe. It's kind of like, Coke's secret formula, isn't it? Right, absolutely. What about uh, with movies like Super Size Me or the Fast Food Nation book as well? Did that put a dent in any of these large corporations? Absolutely. It changed It changed the way that they they are perceived by the general public. And it created a kind of a culture war in a lot of ways. In the, in the United States in particular, Fast food became something that became political in a way. People don't like being told how to eat and, and how to live. And so that became something that people would say, you know, I, I understand that this isn't great for me or, you know, people say that this isn't good, but I'm going to eat what I want. I can take care of myself. And then there are people who are focused on the health aspects of it or the environmental component of it. And they want these companies to change. So it, it really does reflect broader society and, and the divisions that, that exist within it because what we eat is very political. There's also words that they use, thick shakes. They don't call them milkshakes. Is that to get around the fact that sometimes there may not be milk in them? Um, there are different things that they use from, for, for marketing to, uh, to, to sort of weasel out of any official uh, claim. But sometimes it's just a branding. It's just a branding agent. It's just a, a way to sort of stand out from the way that the Whopper is not just a burger. The Whopper is a Whopper. That was a huge part of why Burger King became successful is because other places had hamburgers and they had the Whopper. So it just depends on the on the case. But yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of misdirection there for sure. Mm. Um, more than five percent of the entire Australian population has worked at McDonald's at some stage. What does it mean to people looking at a resume or a CV when they see that someone's worked at McDonald's? Well, a lot of that depends on the context. In the United States, there was a, there was an estimate in, in the 90s that one in eight Americans had worked at McDonald's at some point. And when you look at the people who have, Jeff Bezos, the richest person in the world, worked at a McDonald's. Um, a lot of successful people did. And so there's a real kind of democratic rags to riches aspect to the story that people really like. And then there's, there's the reality of it, which is that it's very hard work. It's a great way to learn how to do a job. It's a first job for a lot of people. 
Um, and that's less true now, that, that, that idea that um, you can become somebody who's very successful by starting out in McDonald's. So that, that, that resume entry story has changed over the years from being a, a way for people to move up and, and, and sort of achieve mm -hmm. to people who make it stuck. Well, someone who ran uh, uh, McDonald's uh, internationally was an Australian who began by sweeping the floors at uh, McDonald's at uh, Kensington in Sydney. What a pleasure it's been to talk to you, Adam. Uh, this hour has just flown by, and it's really the tip of the iceberg lettuce, and I hope we get the chance to talk again, and thank you so much. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.